Welcome everyone to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Finar Jørgensen. And I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And we are your hosts for today. Uh, and we are joined by Justina Pore-Vibranowska, uh, who's going to talk about her new book, uh, Climate Change, Ecological Catastrophe and the Contemporary Postcolonial Novel. So I'm just going to give it over to you, Justina. Thanks very much. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to see everyone here uh, virtually. Very happy to be here with you all. Uh, and I'm just going to get started so there's no sort of preamble. I'll tell you a little bit about what I'm going to talk to you about. So there's a little bit of a structure to my talk and then I'll just get right into it. So the first thing I wanted to do is I'll tell you a little bit about my positionality and sort of my relationship to this research. And I'll tell you how I came to this research uh, and what questions uh, guided me in this project. Then I'll give you a sort of very quick and simple summary of the argument and a summary of my key findings, um, a short discussion of the contributions that it's making and future directions for research. And then I would be excited to discuss with you all sort of what new things I'm doing and what, what are the newer directions that I'm interested in taking this conversation into. So given what I research, I believe it's critical to make my positionality uh, and my relationship to the subject matter really clear. So I'm gonna start there. I'm a white settler living and working on the dish with one spoon territory, commonly known as Toronto, Canada. Uh, and this land is the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, of the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee and the Wendat peoples. It's land which remains home to many First Nations, Inuit and Métis people who continue to care for and sustain this land today. I know that we're all joining today from different places around the world. And this goes without saying, but I'm gonna make it explicit because I'm dealing with stories and uh, traditional knowledge. Each of these places have their own histories and traditions and stories that need to be known and remembered and honored because they provide context to our own stories, no matter what our personal backgrounds are. I research uh, stories and work and knowledge belonging to indigenous nations that are halfway around the world for me and that I have no relationship to other than through my research. And so I come to the subject matter as an outsider. And given this, my book sort of prioritizes the work of indigenous peoples belonging to the nations and cultures that I write about and uses their words to guide my approach to the subject matter and my approach to these, um, these cultures and knowledge systems. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my own personal background. Um, as I said, I'm working out of Toronto, Canada. I have a PhD in English and world literature from York University. And my specialization is in the environmental humanities from a sort of literary and media perspective. Um, I'm a post-colonialist by training and I work a lot in disaster studies and in animal studies. And I do a lot of work, particularly in contemporary world literature, like very contemporary um, with a particular focus in areas that are former British colonies. So the areas that my book talks about, for example, are South Asia and the South Pacific. And more recently, I've become interested in climate change and catastrophe in contemporary film. So disaster film, uh, disaster fiction, cli-fi, and all of its sort of um, tentacles coming out of it, uh, magical realism, kaiju films, uh, and I'd love to talk about that with you all later, uh, but for now I'll focus on the topic that my book is on. So the last thing I'll say is that uh, this book, Climate Change, Ecological Catastrophe and the Contemporary Postcolonial Novel, 
um, is part of the Routledge Studies in World Literature and the Environment series. And the research that it was based on was jointly funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and by my alma, my alma mater, York University. I'm gonna take a pause there. Um, there are two things, sort of two questions or two problems that led me to doing this project. And I'll tell you about them now. They're really sort of two conversations that appear disconnected, but that come together in a way that becomes obvious when I tell you about it. So I'm, I'm just gonna get right into it. The first sort of problem that was bothering me was the disconnect between what I was reading in post-colonial scholarship and what I was reading in disaster studies. But I'm talking specifically about like literary disaster studies. As I said, I'm a post-colonialist by training and I became really fascinated with how much of the post-colonial fiction I was reading was actually disaster fiction. But nobody was reading it as disaster fiction. They were reading it as post-colonial fiction or diasporic fiction or immigrant fiction or you know, globalization fiction, all these things uh, that are sort of adjacent to post-colonialism, but never acknowledging it as disaster fiction. And the reverse was also true. There was, a, there's a ton, if you know Cli-Fi, you know there's a ton of contemporary disaster fiction being written in North America and being published in North America for a North American audience. Uh, and that stuff is getting read as disaster fiction but it's not connecting with the post-colonial scholarship and the disaster novels that are being published in other parts of the world and post-colonial South aren't connecting with that critical discussion. So my goal was really to, to close this gap, right? To, to look specifically at disaster fiction from the post-colonial South and to read it as post-colonial disaster fiction. And the goal of this was to bring a recognition of the not insignificant part that colonialism played in the making of contemporary climate change and in the making of catastrophes today. So that was the first sort of problem that was bothering me. The second problem that was bothering me um, was the disconnect between the reality of climate change and the way it was actually being written about and talked about in contemporary public discourse. Obviously there is public discourse that recognizes that climate change is a problem and is real and is happening. Of course, all of that goes without saying, but a lot of it doesn't. I began reading a lot about climate change. This is about probably 2014. And what I was reading didn't make a lot of sense to me. What I was learning was that again, obvious to most on this call probably, you know, climate change is already impacting people all over the world uh, in very dramatic and traumatic ways. People are already losing their lives, losing their livelihoods, losing their homes, losing, losing everything. And despite of this, there is so much committed, organized climate change denial, even amongst communities that experience catastrophes that we know to be linked to climate change, there continues to be a persistence of this of this organized climate denial, this this cognitive dissonance, right? This inability or refusal to acknowledge that these things are happening and that they are a real threat. And I just I couldn't understand this, so I started reading more and more about climate change, but specifically from the perspective of psychology and sociology. And the more I read, it became clear that this really is a psychological issue. This is a problem at the level of perception. 
of how we perceive climate change. And there's a ton of scholarship on this uh, in the field of literary studies. Uh, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend a long time on this because I can I can say more about this later, but Basically, there's so much written on how climate change, because of the way it works, because of how gradually it happens, because of how incrementally it builds, it's so hard to represent in fiction, in movies, in literature. It's, it's so difficult to put your finger on it and say, ah, this is an instance of climate change because it's so diffuse, right? It's so gradual that it's hard to sort of capture and point to and, and, and hold in your hand in a sort of tangible way. And this also makes it difficult to imagine Right? It's, hard to, it's hard to imagine what a one centimeter rise in sea level looks like or what a one degree change in global temperature average feels like. It, it's, it seems insignificant, right? And that's part of the problem. It's that because it's so spread, it's so diffuse, it's so gradual, it's difficult for people to imagine it in a way that accurately captures the real tangible, concrete and immediate impacts that it's already having. And this is why I decided to intervene at the level of fiction, because it lets me get a pulse on how contemporary writers are thinking about it, how they're imagining it, and what sort of visions of climate change or imaginations of climate change they're passing on to their readers. And it's, it's vital to know this, because in order to change how we think about something, we need to first know how we think about it, right? It, it gives us the where are we now. Um, and that's part of the work that this book is doing. So the questions that really guided me in my research in, in no particular order, I mean, I guess in a particular order, the order would be from more specific to more broad would be, first of all, what is the relationship between histories of colonialism and present day catastrophe? How does contemporary fiction represent the impacts of climate change and catastrophe? specifically on human relationships with the non-human world. And then getting more abstract, what do normal ecological conditions look like in contemporary fiction? What is normal? Um, how might novels help redefine what that normal looks like today? And what does the novel have to offer us to sort of help us better face this normal? And finally, broader still, what might greater engagement between the fields of disaster studies, post-colonial studies, and indigenous studies bring to current discussions about environmental crisis, catastrophe, and sort of the Anthropocene writ large? Uh, yeah, and I'm gonna just pause there because I've said a whole bunch of stuff and I just wanna see if there's anyone who has any questions at this time. Yeah, I guess what, um, what I was wondering is, what kinds of literature? So you said you're a South Asian specialist. That's that's where you're thinking. So um, is there a particular canon that you're looking at um, in this in this book? And I guess how did you come to that canon or or group of texts to analyze? Yeah, absolutely. So the sort of primary site of investigation are, uh, as you said, uh, six novels. Three of them are from South Asia. Three of them are from the South Pacific. Um, and the criteria for how I selected them were uh, it has to be contemporary. I love working with very contemporary works. The oldest book I work with is published in 1999. And the newest one I work with is published in 2012. So sort of very contemporary. Um, it had to be a post-colonial text. 
It had to be set in a post-colonial region. It had to feature a catastrophe of some kind um, and in some way engage with climate change. Some of them engage directly. They mention climate change or they mention uh, changes in climate patterns without saying the word climate change. Some of them do it sort of more obliquely. But those were the criteria. It has to be post-colonial. It has to engage with that history of colonization in some way. And it has to deal with catastrophe. The, the types of catastrophe that I deal with are varied and, and diverse. I deal with things like uh, deforestation, uh, mining, uh, land development for tourism, for example, forest fires, floods, landslides, uh, invasive species, uh, pushing out native species. So a whole bunch of different, uh, I mean, fun for me because I'm a disaster studies scholar, but objectively horrible things. Um, and the way that I sort of found this canon, you know, there's, there is, much to my chagrin, there is no internet repository or list of all disaster studies novels. So you just had to read post-colonial fiction until you found <laughs> a number that sort of worked or, an, or, or enough to say, okay, there is something here. I'm not just sort of making this up. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. Uh, Micah would love to know what you found on mining and forest fires, because those are topics that she um, researches as personal interest there, Micah. Uh, I would love to take this conversation with you offline. We can talk about Australia, we can talk about South Pacific. Uh, if you're interested specifically in primary sources, I can tell you what novels I was I was looking at. If you're interested in secondary sources, I can tell you sort of what exciting journals about mining I read uh, as a literary scholar. <laughs> cool. Um, so were all of the authors of these works, um, were, you know, what was their background? Were some of them the settler colonial, you know, persons by their own, you know, admission um, who were writing about these post-colonial spaces or did you, you know, intentionally pick um, people who were the colonized? So uh, that's a great question. So for the South Pacific, the three authors whose works I look at are uh, indigenous people who have like, like who are writing about their own nation. Um, for South Asia, this was more complicated and I can talk about why. The authors that I look at from South Asia are Amitav Ghosh, Kiran Desai, um, and uh, Uzma Aslam Khan. They are all uh, post-colonial sort of subjects, right? Part of the South Asian diaspora. And I'm gonna pause there because that's a, there is some difficulty in that question that I can, I can talk about later if people are interested in the, in the nuances. Well, cause I, I was thinking about, um, you know, what the difference yeah, can, can you be a post-colonial writer or think about things from a colonial lens um, without being uh, yet in a post-colonial state? And and I say this having just finished uh, Maya Lunda's um, The End of the Ocean, which is her second book in her Extinction uh, Trilogy, um, which is a climate change novel uh, where in of the two timelines that you're seeing, where one timeline is about, if you will, a, a capitalist colonialism 
of Norway's glaciers um, and the tapping and routing of, of water. Um, and the second later timeline is uh, when there's basically climate has changed and it's um, ongoing drought in um, in continental Europe. And so, but she's a, she's a Norwegian. She's writing about Norway, if you will. So her, the, that first story is also a colonial story, but not, not the same kind of colonialism. It's a, it's a capitalist kind of uh, colonization of the landscape. So I was wondering what you think about that. Um, how, how, how do you, as thinking about this post-colonial disaster studies, um, position that kind of author? Mm, that's an interesting question. I have not read this and I have, I would have to sort of look more into it to give you a, an explicit answer, but I don't think that it, that something necessarily has to be after colonization to be colonial, right? There are a whole bunch of post-colonial uh, thinkers and writers who talk about uh, the post not as a temporal category, but as a, as a way of thinking about, right? How post can be after, before, during, through, against, all of these things can stand in for post. Um, so I think that as long as it's engaging with a colonial history, a colonial ideology in some way, and it's resistant to or responding against it or, or writing back to it, there is an argument to be made there for how it could be colonial, post-colonial, yeah. Great. So people in the audience, if you'd like to ask a question, please write into the chat and then we'll call on you or ask your question, depending if you want to write it out. Micah does have a question, she said, so I will click to unmute you, Micah. There you are. Hi. Hi. I do have, I do have a, a non only specific to my research question uh, that I'm hoping I can ask you. Uh, and I was trying to madly type it out, but I think it's probably just easier if I do this. Um, so I'm wondering what you make of, and I don't know how widely your sort of reach went in terms of your research, but in um, disaster history, there's an argument that I, that I have encountered uh, that, that sort of goes, the label of a natural disaster as unprecedented and as natural is actually harmful uh, because it sort of obscures the power relationships and the inequalities in the colonialism that may have made that disaster worse or even precedented, like even created that disaster in the first place. And so I'm wondering what you make of that um, because I think, like I wonder also in the context of climate change, it gets a little bit tricky uh, because you know, it is unprecedented in a lot of ways. So where, where's the line there? How do you navigate the way that we use language around natural disasters? Yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, thank you so much. I love that question. Uh, I completely agree with that disaster studies framework that you're bringing here, 100%. There is no such thing as a natural disaster. I subscribe to that, I agree. That's actually why I use the language of ecological catastrophe uh, because I don't like natural and I don't like disaster, right? There's, I'm not going to say the whole spiel, but Latour, nature, culture, we get it. There is no natural, blah, blah, blah. There is nothing that we have not intervened in. So the nomenclature of natural isn't very useful. So I've taken it out. 
uh, ecological is relevant because it is about a relationship between us and the system that we live in. And disaster I have moved away from because of the root of how it comes from uh, ill-starred. So faded, predestined, just a bad thing that fate has brought upon us. Again, denying the accountability of human intervention, denying the power relations at play, denying the fact that what we often call a, as a disaster isn't really an event, but is actually a process that just eventually led to one thing that was explosive and that we finally paid attention to. And that's the thing that we call disaster. But that is not what the, where the disaster begins and ends, right? The disaster is the whole process. So that's why I like catastrophe uh, because catastrophe, and I'm pulling a little bit from uh, Aristotle's poetics, is the thing, uh, it's, it's very related to anagnoresis uh, the reversal, the turning point, the moment of recognition. So I'm using ecological catastrophe because I see it as something that uh, acknowledges the power relations, refuses to treat it as a singular event in time, and also that allows it to be not just a thing that happens to us and that's bad, but a moment in which we can actually do something with it, have a recognition, and and make 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 something of it moving forward take it into the future in a productive way and that's what a lot of the novels that I work with do is they don't only stage the disaster they stage the community response to it and the recovery from it that was my answer to part of your question I have forgotten the second part can you remind me please Sorry, I just had to wait for Dolly to unmute me. Um, the second part was about how we then take that into a context where, uh, like with climate change, where in fact, what we are experiencing is unprecedented in a lot of ways. Right. Um, so that bit, I guess I would push back on a little bit just because it's, I mean, yes and no, right? Of course, climate change, the way we're experiencing it now is unprecedented, but the way the the fact that we are a society that is now struggling with changes that ha we have brought upon ourselves or that have been brought upon us by those in power is not unique for colonized populations, is not unique for indigenous populations the world over. And I actually think this is a good moment for me to sort of get into the sort of the, the main findings of my research. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump back into that because I think that's a, that's an answer to your question, Micah, if that's cool with you. Thanks. Um, so as I was saying, the, the book really looks at six novels, three from South Asia, three from the South Pacific, uh, and it analyzes how they represent catastrophe and how they link it to colonialism. And there's three main sort of nodes three main clusters of conclusions that I have. And for now, I'll just talk about the first cluster, which is that relationship between colonialism and catastrophe. So my findings are that contemporary post-colonial novels both implicitly and explicitly link colonialism to contemporary ecological catastrophe, uh, specifically through this history of colonial environmental mismanagement um, and the environmental degradation practices that in large part began under colonialism and then also endure today in different forms. 
there's a ton of research on how the Western environmental movement emerged out of uh, colonial Eurocentric white supremacist ideologies. And a lot of this kept coming up in my research, even going as far back as the 1800s. There are parts of the book where I'm reading the primary, the, the primary object of analysis, so the, the novels, against some secondary material. And that secondary material is, you know, I mentioned like mining journals. So how is the book representing mining? And then what does mining actually do? And I'm sort of reading them against each other. Um, so I look at a whole bunch of uh, like geology journals, ecology journals, anthropology journals, uh, journals on the uh, cattle raising practices of nomadic tribes in northern Pakistan. Like I, the the work cited is all over the all over the place. Um, and I also look specifically at legislation, colonial legislation, specifically around how land was managed and how resources were managed. And when you're looking at these, these government documents, these proceedings even of like the colonial parliament of Australia, for example, they show a very clear pattern where British colonial officials, you know, they come into South Asia or they come into the South Pacific, they set up a legal system which disenfranchises the indigenous population at every conceivable societal level. Um, they remove indigenous people from their land. They cut off their access to drinking water they uh, limit their ability to hunt and fish and graze their animals as they traditionally had. They divide up the land and they sell it off. They make it impossible for them to feed themselves and sustain themselves as they had for generations. And then at the same time, they clear cut massive tracts of land. They plant monocultures. They create droughts and famines and floods. And they disrupt ecosystems the world over and continue to do so. We all continue to do so. And then they turn around and they write to each other in their letters, uh, you know, we're experiencing a lot of climate change caused by this deforestation that these indigenous cultures are causing because they're grazing their sheep. You know, there's a really kind of mind blowing cognitive dissonance going on there. And you can see it in the legal documents. It's really quite like astounding. Um, and there's this rhetoric of like, you know, these, these indigenous cultures, they're not, they're not practicing uh, environmental sustainability. Like we need, to, we need to stop them and we need to teach them to be more environmentally conscious. So there's like a really like quite horrible, bitter irony to it. Um, so shades again of that cognitive dissonance, that committed unknowing that's going on in, in sort of contemporary climate change discourse. So the conclusion that I'm drawing from this is that you know colonialism and climate change and catastrophe have been intimately linked since the very beginning. Uh, environmental racism goes back hundreds of years and it used to be codified in law in very obvious and explicit ways. Um, and I guess that would be my partial answer to you, Micah. Does that answer your question? Okay. Great, great answer. <laughs> um, Ted had a question here. Um, about post so thinking again kind of back to your you had talked about post uh colonialism and he is wondering about this tension between the sort of grammar of post-colonialism versus the contemporary turn towards coloniality and the ways in which people who engage that grammar they'll criticize post-colonial scholarship for being elitist uh or being somehow you know not connected uh to the people on the land. So how do you feel about 
about that in your own work, particularly thinking about, well, yeah, are, are these people post-colonialist or are they somehow still being colonized and therefore they're not post in that sense? And, and you mentioned some about time there, right? Um, so how do you think about that? I mean, that's a really difficult question. I, I think that there, there is truth absolutely to what you're saying that the, I'm actually going to look in the chat to see if I can get the exact wording of the question because I, I want to respond accurately here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in yeah, his ending, metropolitan. Exactly, in his ending bit there. So how do you see that relation between post-colonial thought and decolonial uh, theory. So is there ah. something that is different between post and D um, in, your, in your thinking? I would say absolutely. Uh, decolonial or anti-colonial does more than just post-colonial, right? Anything that's decolonial necessarily has to be post-colonial, I believe. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but not everything that's post-colonial is decolonial. So there's definitely like a political or an ethical imperative that's 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 bound to the d and the anti that's not necessarily by default there in the post a lot of the authors that i work with from south asia sort of are in that problematic position if you look at people like amitav ghosh uh is amitav ghosh a post-colonial subject absolutely is he a person that writes in a way that's decolonial? Not necessarily. And if you read a lot of his sort of more well-known fiction, if you look at even like Hungry Tide from 2004, um, there are a lot of places where, despite the fact that he's an anthropologist and he's coming to this from, he, he writes his novels with a lot of research, he sort of shows you a lot of the problems that are, that are being dealt with in post-colonial contexts but he doesn't engage with, he sort of shows you the problem and then walks away from it without kind of engaging with it in a way that I would ideally like it to be done. Or he'll resolve problems in the plot without actually resolving the problem. There's a lot of facile endings. There's a lot of sort of turning away from the issue uh, because it might be too thorny. Uh, and this, I'm totally guessing here, but this might be because of the audience of the book, right? Because of the global readership, because these are uh, things that are meant to be read for fun and not things that are being published in scholarly journals. Um, but absolutely, I, I think that the point you're making is is valid and I think it's a really difficult question to answer. Well, speaking of the, the dealing with the problem in the plot in the book, I was wondering these novels that you picked then. Um, yeah, are they are they declensionist? I mean, you know, does everybody die at the end or is it like, oh, there's some some level of hope at, at the at the end of the of the book? Um, you know, are problems resolved or are they simply left because, well, climate change is bigger, you know, or deforestation is bigger than the individuals who are in the novel? I would say that it really varies, depends on the novel. I'd say at least three of them are quite hopeful and optimistic and they end with um, 
the community coming together, dealing with the crisis and sort of working through it and either actually recovering from it or being an, there being an implication that the community sort of will recover and will come out the other side. And then some sort of end on a very uh, sorrowful note and there is no resolution and the problems just sort of hang with you. Um, so it really is different approaches. And that's why part of the book, um, that's why there are some places where I'm focused on what, what catastrophe recovery looks like. And there are some places where I'm looking at what is the experience of the catastrophe itself look like and how do those two connect with each other? Um, what's, what devices are being used to represent one versus the other? What helps and what doesn't? So, so for example, um, human environment relationships and human, human environment and human animal relationships are critical to how these works sort of negotiate the catastrophe and how they talk about environmentally unstable conditions. So they use humans, human animal relationships and human environment relationships to sort of not only show the impacts of the catastrophe on the community, but they also show sort of how the animals themselves in certain cases uh, function as vehicles of this violence that's being enacted upon the environment. Um, and how central those relationships are to helping indigenous communities recover from that catastrophe. Um, and of course, also how the, how the land and the relationships with the land help sustain traditional indigenous knowledge and help sustain community ties and help resist in uh, colonial schemes of control um, and make the community work through the disaster in that manner. Yeah. So I was wondering there, you were talking about human animal relations. So how, yeah, can you tell us a bit more about how those play out? Do they deal specifically? I mean, I myself deal with extinction. So I'm, I'm curious how they, how they deal with extinction, how they deal with, you know, changes to animal populations. Are they thinking in a very local sense? Are they thinking in a global sense? Um, do they deal with, you know, having to move things to somewhere else? So can you tell me a bit more about that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you predicted where I was going next. So I love that question. Thank you. Um, yes, absolutely. So I'll tell you, uh, I'll answer the question sort of generally, and then I'll give you an example. Um, all of the novels that I work with, and this is also sort of part of my, part of the reason I'm using novels is because of the sort of formal constraints of the novel, right? Novels love representing or so traditional uh, novel theory scholarship goes. Novels are married to routine. Novels are married to daily life. Novels are sort of married to the normal routine events that happen. Um, they're, they're, as Moretti would say, you know, in the realm of non-events. So they represent things that are not unusual. Um, and they love giving you very accurate, specific, subjective psychological portraits and very sort of subjective first person experiences of events. So when these novels deal with catastrophe, they're always dealing local and they're always dealing with the specific perspective of the one person that's talking. Either that sort of narrator is um, an indigenous person who's local to the community or uh, someone who's visiting the region as an American tourist. So you get those two different different contrasting views of, for example, um, a landslide in the region. 
And then you also get sometimes in different novels, if there's an omniscient narrator, sort of a community experience, right? The whole community, how they've experienced it. So there are these very specific, very local experiences of the event itself. Uh, and I'm going to talk specifically about the animal a bit now. Uh, in Uzma Aslam Khan, Thinner Than Skin, which is a novel that's set in uh, the Kashmir region of Pakistan, there is um, one of the primary, one of the central characters, her name is Maryam, and she's an indigenous person who's part of the Gujar uh, nomadic peoples of that region. And part of the novel is filtered through her perspective as she goes through her life, sort of grazing her cattle and doing the seasonal migration from the north to the south. And you get from her perspective and her memories how, you know, when I was young, we used to have all these different breeds of horses. Now we only have this one left. Or we used to have all these different kinds of like local, uh, local native sheep. Uh, but the government has gotten rid of all them because now we get cheaper sheep from Australia. The problem is that they, they, aren't, they aren't well suited to our conditions. They die of hunger because they can't sustain themselves on the amount of food that we can provide them and they eat far more than our local sheep. So there's this encroachment of like the ties of the ties of capitalism and the sort of global demand chain filtering into this little closed off region and pushing out the animal species on which these communities have long relied and the the, the problems and the tensions that causes. And through these sort of small things, this small this woman's relationship with her sheep or this woman's relationship with her buffalo, you get glimpses of the larger sort of chains and power dynamics that are going on in the novel. Um, and you do get sort of the struggle. Are we going north this year? Do we have enough resources to go north? Um, are we even going to have a single horse left to carry our things? And it, 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 it becomes a, a first person's experience of these ecological changes that a global readership may never have had first person access to. Well, I think that's a, a great answer that feeds right into a question that Ina had, um, which is, well, speaking about these literary dimensions of disasters, catastrophes, you avoid speaking about victimization. So this we can think of here, you were just talking about this first person. Um, so she said you, you'd mentioned once, you know, victims of slow violence. So how does the issue of victimization, so being victims, get covered in these novels so who is it who's you know do do they portray the people who are facing these catastrophes as victims or not mm. yeah that's a very politically charged question um i would say no i don't think any i don't think any of the novels represent their protagonists as just purely victims they're always you know fully three-dimensional people who make choices in their own life and have agency in the plot and so on and so forth. That being said, of course, there are, um, there are moments where the characters themselves express like powerlessness, frustration, um, the feeling of being trapped, the feeling of not having a choice, not having an option. And there is the, there is often in the background that sense of the the generational impacts coming down upon me that I had no control over. But 
I don't think any of the novels go so far as to talk about it in terms of a, a victimhood. If anything, I would say the, the one novel where there is a victimhood, it's not the it's not the indigenous population that is presented as such. It's the sort of clueless American tourist who is made to be uh, a victim because he's in the wrong time in the wrong place. Yeah. Well, that, and that's so interesting, the, the um, issue of time then in these novels, because as you said, it, a novel has certain constraints and but you do want to convey or I think authors often try and convey the sense of history behind the people that you are only encountering at that moment in reading. And so structurally how to make the the slow violence uh, mm -hmm. apparent is, uh, I think, a challenge um, in these kind of narratives. Um, and so uh, John had a question here. He was asking about, or John, did you want to ask it in person? Um, we can unmute you, John. Thanks very much. Thank you, Justina. Um, I just wanted to ask, and it really follows on perfectly from what Dolly was just saying, whether these novels use or incorporate different modes of writing to enable them to address the extremity of these events or the kind of futures and so forth. So is there, do they incorporate um, modes of magic realism or science fiction or the fantastic, any of those things? Or are they determinately within a sort of, I guess what you'd think of as a realist mm. uh, mode? Thank you, I love that question. I love when questions are exactly where I'm going next. So thanks so much, John. Yes, um, a lot of these novels are sort of rem remain within the constraints of what you would call a realist novel with huge quotation marks, uh, a conventional realist novel. But there are some that sort of um, move into magical realism delicately. Hungry Tide, Amitav Ghosh's Hungry Tide has some magical realist elements. I would say Kiran Desai's Inheritance of Loss, the, an argument could be made for some magical realist moments in there. The novels that I'm reading out of the South Pacific, so uh, Patricia Grace's Potiki, Alexis Wright's Carpentaria, um, and ah, Kim Scott's Benang, uh, Benang from the Heart. Uh, those three unarguably move out of the realist mode, genre, however you want to refer to that, but they don't go into magical realism. They go into what Alexis Wright for her own work calls Aboriginal realism. And I would argue that a Patricia Grace's Potiki does the same thing. She, she goes into like a sort of um, a storytelling mode that's largely inspired by Maori storytelling traditions and, and oral histories. So there is a very uh, there, if you pick up like the Amitav Ghosh and you pick up Potiki, it's a completely different readerly experience. The, the ones out of the South Pacific are very heavily inspired by the oral storytelling traditions of the cultures that they're coming from. And it does, it does make for a completely different, um, almost disorientating experience as a Western reader coming into this text. It is very, um, it's just a more challenging readerly experience. Benang in particular, that's one of Sometimes, you know, as a literary scholar, you, you finish a book and you're like, I'm not 100% sure that I know exactly what happened and you have to go back to it. Benang is one of those books. It's, it's, it's dense, it's hard to get into, 
And it's hard to sort of get a grasp on exactly what happened because of the mode that the writer is writing in. Um, and yes, I, I, I love where the question is coming from, John, because you're, you're absolutely right. These, these, these limitations that the novel has, I'm actually arguing that that's what enables it to better engage with climate change and catastrophe, right? So I know you're making a face because that's the opposite of what people like Amitav Ghosh and Timothy Clark say, right? They say the novel is not suited to dealing with climate change. I say nonsense. Of course, the novel is suited to dealing with climate change. Um, the formal properties, the generic restraints of the novel put it in a uniquely productive place specifically for responding and engaging because like Ghosh's argument is climate change is hard to represent so when we do represent it, people take it as, oh, this is not realistic. But that's exactly what makes it helpful. Because since these novels operate in a world that is by and large married to these tropes of realism and that, that has an easy time accommodating the normal and the routine and a difficult time accommodating the extraordinary. So what happens when a catastrophe is appears. What, ha what happens to the normal when a catastrophe is introduced? Two things can happen, right? Either the catastrophe becomes part of the normal or the catastrophe interrupts the normal. In these works, sort of both is happening. The catastrophe becomes enfolded into the normal daily life of these characters that experience it by virtue of the fact that it has to, the novel form has to make the catastrophe fit. So it's actually forcing them into a structure that rewrites them as routine events, as continuous with the everyday. So the novels actually, they take catastrophe out of the realm of the extraordinary, which is where Ghosh would put it, which is where uh, Moretti, based on his arguments, would put it as well. And they put it into the realm of the everyday, into the realm of non-events. And in so doing, that novel form is actually forcing us, the reader, to change the way we're thinking about catastrophe. It's forcing us to recognize that actually these are normal routine events for so many communities around the world. Yeah. I'd like to ask a question that kind of builds on that then about, well, lessons and impacts of this study. I mean, you, you talked about building on uh, disaster studies. Uh, so, but when you talk about disaster studies, what what kind of field you talk about then? Because as I know it, I mean, it, there's also a big connection then to, to risk studies. So more social mm -hmm. science, technology uh, than humanities in general. So is there an interest in these fields for your arguments, I mean, the lessons, because you presented quite a few, I mean, good insights and lessons in, in this presentation as in the book then. But is there some uptake of those lessons? Do you have an interest in that, in the, the larger field of disaster studies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of the disaster studies that, I, that, that influenced me isn't so much the, the risk and the quantitative, but the sort of, I almost want to say like the philosophy of disaster studies, Corintelli and all the sort of pure original <laughs> disaster studies stuff, how you think about disaster, what counts as a disaster, um, is there a definition of disaster that can be had that is, ex that is exhaustive, but also precise enough for it to be useful when we're talking about disaster, or is it only 
um, an earthquake or can it also be the explosion of a mine, right? So where is the line between so-called man-made disasters uh, and natural disasters? And of course, uh, I, I don't believe in that uh, separation because I don't think it's, it's, it's useful. Um, but absolutely, I think that, I think that it would be, I, I would be very encouraged if there were more discussion between sort of a more traditional humanities, even literary post-colonial studies and the social science rooted disaster studies. Uh, an argument was made by Anthony Kerrigan around 2015 that uh, post-colonial studies should be, that, that post-colonial studies and disaster studies should be thought of as, uh, as subsets of one another. And I, I completely agree and, and, and that is in line with the way that I think about it. If we start to think of colonialism and as catastrophe together, a lot more could be done, which both fields could benefit from. Um, and a lot also for the field of, of literary studies in particular, right? So what, what, what is a novel? What can a novel do? Um, and what can it not do? Sort of very, very vague questions. I'm going to leave it on. Dagmara had a question. I can unmute you, Dagmara. Perhaps, no? You can just ask. Yeah, well, there was a, a question about the specific tools in the field of, so, so post-classical narratology or cognitive science. I mean, you did mention that there's this kind of, uh, you know, cognitive psychological element to these novels. So what kind of tools are you drawing on um, outside of kind of just the, the literary, um, yeah. Toolkit. The literary toolkit to, to, to do your study. I mean, the literary toolkit is pretty much it. I do a lot of close reading and I also like to read. Uh, so a lot of theory went into it. Um, I did deacon, I did dig into sort of cognitive narratology, but only enough to sort of say, I could have taken it in this direction. Here are some sources. I'm not taking it in this direction. Someone else, please do a project on this. Um, my main sort of tools are uh, close reading, and I would almost say like a comparative approach. So reading the the primary source for the way in which it renders these subjective experiences, and then reading the secondary sources, whether they are uh, scientific journals or uh, legislation or letters to parliament officials, and seeing how the fiction sort of takes up and engages with sort of the material reality that it's imagining and responding to. Um, I would say that that is, that, that was my toolkit. Yeah. Great. Um, so I was wondering here, you, you said that the novel is uniquely positioned in, in some sense, I mean, well positioned to be able to take up these issues then of the ecological catastrophe. Um, in your intro, you said you're moving towards film. Um, so how do you think about that? I mean, does film, do you think that film engages with ecological catastrophe differently, um, in mm. so far as you've thought about it, or is it doing it similarly to the novels that you read? Oh, that's a fascinating question. I don't think I've thought about that in that way yet. Um, my, in, in, in a, in a pure, purely honest and transparent answer, my interest in disaster film comes from the fact that I love saying, I'm going to go do research and then watching a bunch of films that I want to watch anyway. 
Um, so <laughs> that's why that's why that's the direction I'm going in because it makes the research part fun. Um, so I've been I've been watching a lot of uh, Godzilla Pacific Rim sort of if anyone wants to talk about that email me we can talk for hours um and that's 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 what i'm interested in is is the the line between where the normal is are we there are we past it what does the normal look like has the normal shifted um when these catastrophes occur are we shocked are we not shocked is the catastrophe normal now these are the questions that i'm sort of asking myself as i go into these these different areas as well Okay, um, Gabriella had a question. We'll make this one our last one. Gabriella. I had a question about um, not only this project, but perhaps your future work. Do you ever look at the histories of other people writing in disaster studies that surround the disasters that your, your novelists are writing about? And if you do, do you read them as literature or do you read them as history? Mm, super interesting question. Uh, yes, I do look at sort of literature and humanities. Uh, a, a, lot, a lot of this, I'm going to say, just go look at work by Anthony Kerrigan. He does really great stuff on the relationship between a disaster and tourism. And I, I read a lot on how other people have written about the disasters in the works that I engage with. But a lot of them don't do it in the way that I'm interested in, or they do it in a way, or, or they look at disasters that have happened a long time ago. So there's a, there's a temporality element too, right? Uh, Timothy Morton, uh, Kate Rigby, a lot of these people who look at disasters in fiction, look at disasters that are very historical, uh, sort of a bajillion years ago till about 1850. Oh, there's little on stuff that's more contemporary on stuff that happens actually during climate change. So Kate Rigby, actually the only sort of contemporary work that she looks at is Alexis Wright's Carpentaria. That's the only disaster story that she looks at that's, that has a relevance to present day climate change. Um, do I look at them as literature? I mean, yes, because I don't think I espouse like a neat separation between literature and not literature. Even when I'm looking at government legislation, I'm close reading it. And I'm reading it against novelistic representations. So I guess that's my answer to your question. Absolutely. We always make narratives with everything, don't we? So yep. we are, however, running out of time. So we should wrap up. Uh, so thank you again uh, to Justina Pereira-Ubernowska for talking about her book, Climate Change, Ecological Catastrophe, and a Contemporary Post-Colonial Novel. And thank you all for coming.